Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. We are live at New York Vet, and I'm having such a great time today sitting down and talking with some of the amazing and brilliant speakers that we have here at New York Vet this year, dropping knowledge on all of the attendees that are out here. And I am getting the opportunity right now to sit down with Dr. Andrew Rosenberg. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Becky. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. We're talking about food allergies, and your talk here at New York Vet is food allergy. Is it really as common as owners? And and pet stores think. And I want to pick this all apart, but before I do, tell me a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Tell me more. Sure. So my name is Andrew Rosenberg. I grew up uh, right here in New York on Long Island. And I went to Cornell both for undergrad and veterinary school. I then did a residency in Southern California. And then a few years ago, I moved back to the East Coast. And um, I have my own dermatology practice out here with four different locations in Jersey, in Westchester, in White Plains, Rockland County, and on Long Island. So you, I mean, you are rocking the derm out here in New York. Dermatology. Yeah, it's, I, I love it. It's a passion for me and we have a really great team. It's called Animal Dermatology and Allergy Specialists. We have a few dermatologists and a resident as well. I love it. And tell me this. Are you a veterinarian who knew his whole life he wanted to be a vet? Did that come along later? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I'm one of those kids where um, when you ask them in kindergarten what they wanted to be when they grew up, the answer was veterinarian. And I just never changed. Yeah, I wanted to be a veterinarian my whole life. And then once I was in veterinary school, I just developed a real um, interest and passion for dermatology. That's outstanding. This is a big topic, right? I mean, food allergies in general. And this title, like I'm not going to lie, I personally have avoided certain pet food stores and and boutique stores because it is sometimes frustrating as a veterinary professional to hear some of the things I overhear. And I don't always know how to approach what I overhear and and what my place is. And I feel like the fact is, is that we do have some pretty seriously strong advice, in my opinion, going out to owners from individuals who maybe don't have the scientific knowledge or background to be maybe giving that advice. But at the same time, when we ask a lot of owners, they don't feel like they're getting a specific recommendation about food from their veterinary team. And I think they do often feel a little bit confused. So they end up in these types of places seeking advice. And I think a lot of times owners come back to the clinic with like a concern about food allergies from maybe these stores. What's your take on that? I can't agree with you more, Becky. Veterinarians should really be the ones giving advice to their clients about what they should be feeding their pet. And unfortunately, there are so many myths and misconceptions out there, both online and employees at pet stores. And a lot of this is perpetuated by marketing from a lot of food companies about what the right ingredients are for pet foods and what could help dogs with skin disease or other diseases. And so I do think it's one of those areas where as veterinarians, we should be talking to our clients a little bit more about what they are feeding. And if we don't think that they're feeding a good diet, we should be making some recommendations. If we're not the ones making recommendations, then then our clients are going to go to Dr. Google or they're going to speak with you know an 18-year-old at the pet store who is there as a summer job who really doesn't have the training or the knowledge to really be making appropriate recommendations. Right. I mean, right. And one thing I do want to clarify here, uh, first off, is the difference between allergies and intolerances. So one of the things I'm going to be speaking about in my lecture here at New York Vet is just some definitions, what things are, because there's a lot of terms that are thrown around that a lot of us don't really know what the subtle differences are. So a food allergy or a cutaneous adverse food reaction is the recognized term for it, is an actual 
chemical hypersensitivity reaction to a specific food ingredient. So that means the body is having an immune reaction against a specific protein in the ingested food. And what's interesting about dogs and cats is that their food allergies are not just a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction uh, like we see in people. So different types of reactions have been identified, types 1, type 3, type 4. So those are actual food allergies where their immune system reacts. Food intolerances are non-immune reactions to different foods. So these could be things like a lactose intolerance in people, where your body has a reaction to a food, but it's not immune mediated. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think one thing I want to hone in on is you said proteins, yes. right? It's a protein that we have an allergy to. And so where do grains fall into that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So that's one of those myths out there that's been perpetuated by marketing and by different things in pet stores and online as well. Grains are very, very unlikely to cause food allergies in both our dogs and cats. So every study that has looked at what specific foods are causing reactions for food allergic individuals, grains are extremely low on the list. It's typically an animal protein, the most common ones being beef, chicken, and dairy, and then fish for cats, including beef and chicken. And when you look at actual food allergies, how the immune system reacts to them or recognizes them is if they're large proteins. So the immune system has to see a large protein, it recognizes it, and then causes a reaction. So those large proteins are, again, proteins, not grains. But when it comes to an intolerance, this is where a grain could come in, right? Like, do we see those intolerances in the grain department. You could. You absolutely could see some intolerances in the grain department, but not as commonly as you would in proteins. So what is the difference in the manifestations when we see these patients coming to us that we can differentiate from their presentation an allergy and an intolerance? And I think part of that is important because we do want to honor the owner's concern, right? If the owner has a concern for an allergy, we don't want to like negate it and say, oh, it's not an allergy because it's not a, a protein. We want to be educated and explain the difference. So what are some things we're looking for on presentation or is there anything on presentation to differentiate an allergy from an intolerance, obviously, like except for like the IgGs and IgE reactions and getting down to that level? Yeah, so it can be very difficult to differentiate between an actual food allergy versus an intolerance. With food allergies, we're typically going to see a skin manifestation, some cutaneous disease, in addition to possible gastrointestinal issues. Whereas if something's just a strict intolerance, it's usually going to manifest as just a gastrointestinal issue. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense for sure. Now, another thing I want to clarify before we get too far, um, when you open your presentation, you're talking about um, the differences in presentation in food allergies in dogs and cats. So there's a difference in how they will present even. Yeah, there is. And this goes back to there's differences in how dogs and cats with any allergy will show us clinical signs. So dogs with environmental allergies versus dogs with food allergies can look exactly the same. And cats with environmental allergies and cats with food allergies can look exactly the same. And that's why it is a challenge to diagnose it. So if we think about our dogs with food allergies, they can get pruritic or, or itch associated with the ears, their paws, their rears, their armpits, their groin area. Dogs with food allergies can do the exact same thing. The one difference with food allergies is that it's non-seasonal. So it can happen throughout the year if the dog is eating the same food. Whereas environmental allergies can be seasonal or non-seasonal, depending on what specifically that individual is allergic to. With cats, cats do something totally different than dogs do with allergies. Cats will exhibit four different what's called skin reaction patterns. And the reaction patterns include face and neck paritis, self-induced alopecia or chewing their hair out that used to be referred to as self-barbering or fur mowing 
uh, miliary dermatitis, which are small little crusts in, on the skin, which are non-follicular papules, and then eosinophilic dermatoses, which include granulomas, rodent ulcers, things like that. So cats can exhibit any of those reaction patterns, and many cats with either environmental allergy or food allergy will exhibit a combination of those reaction patterns. Now again, just like dogs, cats with food allergies, as long as they're eating the same food, will be non-seasonal and cats with environmental allergies can be seasonal or non-seasonal. Okay, so this kind of brings me to the studies that you outline in your lecture because to your point, some of it is very broad, right? They're, they can present a bunch of different ways and the studies kind of, I, I'm sorry, they just sort of seem all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you're trying to actually, we love studies, we like data and I want to look at these studies and walk away knowing and I'm not sure I do when I actually read through them. Is there any way to narrow down these hypersensitivity, allergy, fleas, environment without a thousand vet visits and seeing them every couple of weeks. Like, how can we make this practical? Do you have tips? Sure. So, and you're right. The studies are all over the place. Part of it is because it's really hard to get a large population of just food allergic individuals to really get really concrete numbers down. Whenever I'm presented with a dog or a cat that I think is allergic and I'm trying to figure out, well, is this a food allergy? Is this an environmental allergy? I do a few things. Number one, I make sure they're on good flea control uh, because even if you don't see evidence of fleas, you want to make sure you're ruling out a flea allergy. The only real true way to diagnose a food allergy is with a strict diet trial. Unfortunately, none of the allergy tests available today are accurate. Many studies have shown that the serum allergy testing that look at IgE are both non-repeatable and inaccurate. Um, there's a few studies that have also shown a lot of those home saliva or, or hair pluck tests that the owners will do at home and send it into a lab. Those are completely inaccurate. In those studies, they actually show that those labs could not distinguish between an animal sample versus tap water and teddy bear fur. Now, now, you're presented with an itchy dog or an itchy cat, you want to make sure they're on flea control, and then you put them on a food trial. The food trial must be strict and should be around eight weeks long. And strict means no other foods, treats, raw hides, bones, flavored chewies, flavored chew toys, flavored vitamins, flavored anything. And then at the end of that eight-week period, if that individual is doing significantly better, the way you actually diagnose a food allergy is you go back to their original food and you see if they get itchier again. You see if they get their clinical signs back. That's how you diagnose a food allergy. Then there's even more work to do to figure out specifically what ingredient it is by putting them back on the special diet and doing individual ingredient challenges. So that's how you diagnose it. It's not easy, and that's why I think a lot of owners and a lot of veterinarians have a difficult time convincing their owners to perform an adequate food trial. So that brings me to my next question for you. How do we enhance and get that client compliance so that we can actually do the best by our patients? Yeah, so it's hard. It's hard. There's, there, it, unfortunately, there's not an easy way to convince owners to perform a good food trial. What I usually recommend is telling owners that this isn't going to be the diet for the rest of the dog or cat's life. You don't necessarily need to be strict for the rest of the dog or cat's life. This is our test. So I try to train my pet parents to look at this as, as a diagnostic, just like you would look at drawing blood as a diagnostic test. So you say this is a diagnostic test. Yes, the food might be a little bit more expensive than, than a normal food, but you just look at it as, as a test just like any other. Have to be strict on it. The other thing that I'll, I'll tell people is that 
if your pet gets better just from the change in diet, think about all of the all of the visits you'll be saving and all the money you'll be saving by not having to keep coming into the office. Think about how much better we can make your pet just with the food. Yeah. And that a lot of times will convince pet parents to do that. Now, just to add to that, even when my owners tell me they're being really strict, you always have to question them on the recheck. So are you giving any treats? Oh, you know, well, I'm just giving a little bit of chicken with that every day. Well, then it's not strict anymore. And then we have to start over. Right, right. Or the kitties that visit the neighbors and they're like super strict at home. And it turns out the neighbors, you, know, you always hear about those cats that the neighborhood thinks is stray and it actually just has four families. It's milking throughout the neighborhood getting meals from. So I, I've actually seen like collars that are like, uh, don't feed me. I have a home. <laughs> And it's so smart to do. And there are a lot of good collars out now that say, don't feed me, I have a food allergy. Yeah. A- another thing that sometimes I'll do is I'll put a callback reminder in my practice management software to just call the owner two to three weeks after we start the food trial yeah. and just see how they're doing. Right. See if they're being strict. Talk about some other things we can do to make them more compliant. What about when they don't like the food? I mean, like, especially in cats, I feel like sometimes this is the biggest struggle we get into because clients are like, just they're not eating it. They won't eat it. And of course, you know, they think their pet's going to starve to death. And obviously, you know, it's not great if they're not eating, but maybe we're not going to starve to death. But I mean, I think there's a lot of anthropomorphism here. And a lot of times they don't like the food. They don't want the, the more bland, limited ingredient type diet. So yeah. what do you do there? Cats and dogs are very different in this department um, because cats, if they really go on a food strike, they can actually develop hepatoclopidosis right. and real medical issues. So what I tell my clients and, and most, almost all the food companies have this policy where if the um, individual pet doesn't like the food or isn't doing well on the food, the pet food company will actually refund your practice. So what I'll do is I will take the food back, give my clients a refund for that food, and I'll try a different hypoallergenic diet. And if they don't like that one, we'll switch it back, try a different one. So like I said, cats are a little bit different. Cats, if they go a couple days without eating, I'll want to switch them to some that they will eat. Dogs, usually if they get hungry enough, they'll eat the food. But again, if they're really not eating for a few days, then I'll switch the diet. While you're doing that, one other thing I always think about is just treating the symptoms. Because these animals are super uncomfortable, right? They're puritic, they're miserable. Ears are itchy, they're doing the boot scoot, their body, you can't even pet your dog, right? Because their whole body itches or your cat, they're miserable. There is like misery involved here. So are you using medications to treat itching? Things are available, either injectable or oral, that you can recommend with the food trial patients? Or are they staying off of that so you get the symptoms? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And so many times the owners are coming in to see you because their pet is itchy and they want some relief. So to say, hey, we're not going to do anything for the itch, we're just going to change the food and see what happens for the next eight weeks. You're not going to have very happy clients. And we want to you know, make the pet feel better too. Right. And so yes, what we'll typically do for dogs, if not always, but depending on the case, a really good medication, as long as it's medically appropriate, for dogs to relieve itch during a food trial is, is Apoquel. And so one of the things I'll do is put dogs on Apoquel for seven weeks and I'll have them stop it with that one week left of the food trial. So we're not controlling the itch anymore. And then we're seeing in that last week, does the dog get itchy or not? If they're itchy in that last week, then it's probably not a food allergy. And then we could do a workup for environmental allergies. If you're already reading Clinician's Brief, why not get credit for it? Get affordable, race-approved CE from Clinician's Brief content you trust without leaving your desk. You can track your earned hours, receipts, and certificates and see the latest available courses at cliniciansbrief.com backslash CE. Get started today.
Okay, and that makes me think of two questions. So number one, how do you break it to an owner? Thanks for the last eight weeks. That wasn't it. Yeah. And then two, how are we chasing down environmentals if we don't have reliable testing? You put it as break it to an owner. So what I do is I actually set the owner up at that initial exam right. to say, we're going to see, is this a food allergy or an environmental allergy? Right now, the way your pet looks we can't tell, especially if it's a non-seasonally itchy pet. So we say, we're going to do this test for eight weeks. In eight weeks, if your pet's itchy, then we're going to look into environmental allergies. And there's a few different ways to look into environmental allergies. The gold standard to really identify allergies and desensitize a dog to their specific environmental allergens is skin testing. Intradermal skin testing is still the best way to identify allergens. And through immunotherapy, we can desensitize them to what they're allergic to. Every other medication right now to treat allergies is just treating the itch and inflammation associated with allergies. Immunotherapy is the only treatment that can actually get to the root cause of the problem and desensitize them to their allergens. So immunotherapies available, you feel like are effective even when we don't necessarily have testing that gets us there effectively. We do have tests that are accurate. Skin testing, you know, through a dermatologist is, is considered the most accurate. There are some serum allergy testing out there that aren't accurate for food allergies, but okay. they are accurate and helpful for environmental allergies. And so immunotherapy is only good for environmental allergies. We can't desensitize sensitized to foods. If a dog or a cat is allergic to a food ingredient, then we need to figure out a special diet that they're going to be on that doesn't include that ingredient. But if we're talking about environmental allergies, then yes, immunotherapy is helpful at desensitizing individuals to their environmental allergens. And then the testing's worthwhile. Correct. And that's great to know. Now, tell me some about some age restriction there, because my understanding is that most of the testing, won't, they won't do it in younger dogs. They're waiting until they're becoming mature. And I still think we're seeing allergies pop up in some really young dogs. And so how are you reliably working through that when they're under the testing ages? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. It's a good question. When we're talking about food allergies specifically, food allergies can happen at any age. Okay, two months, three months, a year, six years, seven years can happen at any age. Environmental allergies typically will occur between one to three years of age. And so if I have a really young individual, less than one year of age, come in that's very itchy, the first thing I'll do, flea control and diet trial to make sure that they're not food allergic. If we get through that food trial and they're still itchy, we don't think it's a food allergy at that point, I'll typically wait about it until they're about a year old to do environmental allergy testing. When they're a year old, that individual's experienced a full year's worth of pollens and things that are going to be blooming in their environment. And so usually one year is my limit for allergy testing. Now, as far as what we do in the meantime, we use different medications to keep them comfortable. For a dog that's less than one year old, Apoquel would not be an option because that's labeled for one year and older. Sometimes we'll use steroids, sometimes we'll use Cytopoint, um, sometimes we'll use Atopica. It all really depends on, on the individual case. This brings us to our Keep It Brief segment, and there is no pressure. We rarely keep it brief. For the last block here, you've given us so much knowledge and, and talking points, but then you've got that client in front of you who is grain-free, raw, or other form of maybe uh, more controversial or debatable diets, yeah. uh, my opinion aside. They won't use flea and tick prevention possibly because it's not natural, things like that. How are you helping these pets through better client education? Like, are you, are you able to break through those barriers and what are your tips to do it? Yeah, it's hard sometimes. Yeah. And these are the clients that really you need to spend a lot of time in the exam rooms with and really talk them through each individual thing. So let's uh, kind of break down your question into individual things. So for flea control, you're right. You do have a lot of clients who don't want to quote unquote 
put poison on their pets, right? You can talk to them on hours on end about how there's lots of studies that have been done. Of course, there are some potential side effects with anything, but generally these are considered very safe preventatives. One thing that I will say is on the new class of flea tick products, the isoxazolines, I'll tell people that that molecule is based off of a natural molecule that was identified in sea sponges, actually, to prevent sea lice. And so when they hear that, they say, oh, you know, it is based on a natural molecule. Maybe it's okay. That's one way on that, or excuse me, for, for flea trials, the product Comfortis, the molecule that is spinosad, which is actually a certified organic parasiticide for organic crops and people. And so when you tell people that, you can kind of change uh, hearts and minds a little bit. As far as the raw diets, the grain-free diets, again, this is just a lot of misinformation out there. So for raw diets, the FDA has come out with a warning against using them. The Canadian food and drug version has come out with a warning against using them because not only can pets get sick, but what's being seen is that pets are eating raw diets. They might be fine, but then they lick the family's children or they lick the adult owners and they're actually getting sick. So I'll tell people that, that, hey, you know what? Your pet can get sick from this and your kids can get sick from this. And then a lot of people will take that to heart and, and possibly switch foods. Grain-free, you know, there's newer information now that shows that a lot of the grain-free diets are actually causing heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs who have been on these diets. And so there used to be a big push to get dogs on these grain-free diets by a lot of pet food companies and pet stores. And now we're actually seeing a reversal. And now that we're seeing these increases in heart disease cases, and the FDA has come out with a warning on this as well, where they've identified specific uh, brands that have been implicated in this. And there's been a push now to kind of get dogs off of grain-free diets. So we're kind of seeing a reversal. So everything's kind of coming full circle. Yeah, that one's working itself out. And there's a lot of controversy there and a lot more to come on that. But you know, our clients just see here bits and pieces, and it's important to coach them through. Those are great tips on Honestly, and tricks about getting into those more organic elements with our preventatives to get our clients on it. I'm going to use those and those tips are going to live on for a long time. Perfect. These are great topics. Thank you so much for the knowledge that you're bringing to everybody here at New York Vet. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. We had a good time. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe rate and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.